Hey folks, Eric Levine from Two Cops, One Donut. Want something better than Ring, Arlo, Ring, or any of the other quick launch home security systems? I've been having trouble with my Ring products. They don't read license plates on moving vehicles, the link doesn't connect fast enough to my phone, and I'm tired of getting notifications only to see like a glimpse of something that set it off. I was reached by a veteran-owned business called Agent Security. The owner, the staff, all veterans or former cops, they're Kind of like the Chick-fil-A of customer service when it comes to security. They have a system that does everything companies like Ring do and more. They have pivoting cameras that track day or night. They can also read license plates and catch high-definition details that will lead police more effectively to catching the offender. Their mission is providing the best home security systems to their customers. All you have to do is start the conversation to protect our most valuable assets, our families. They listen to your needs and come up with perfect customized security solutions to protect what matters to you most. You can contact them by phone at 713-962-3558 or email info at agents security.com or visit their website agentsecurity.com that's a-g-e-i-n-t-s-e-c-u-r-i-t-y.com they serve the greater houston area north texas and more be sure to tell them that eric levine from two cops one donut sent you this episode of the podcast is brought to you by impact tactical impact is a tactical outfitter for the men and women of our military police fire departments and other public safety around the country impact's core beliefs is that fearless men and women protect our freedom and safety should have access to the best tactical performance apparel equipment and tools on the market and they shouldn't have to go broke to get it i've used impact for about 11 years and i can attest that they do live up to their core values so you get a personal recommendation from me you can find them at impacttactical.com that's m-p-a-k tactical.com and be sure to tell them that two cops one donut sent you this episode of the podcast is brought to you by hrh combat arms they can turn your vision into reality they specialize in gunsmithing and seracoding your seracote specialist is air force veteran and retired police sergeant paul ware aka the sarge he can seracote your firearms auto parts tools even your sports equipment this veteran-owned business is located at 5025 saunders suite 103 Fort Worth, texas 76119 you can call them at 682-304-0363 and you can find them online at www www.hrhcombatarms.com That's www.hrhcombatarms.com Welcome back to Cops One Donut. I am your host, Eric Levine. And today I managed to get outside the box. I don't have a first responder. I don't have a military person. Um, I don't have anybody that actually is a part of the criminal justice system. Um, I have a secondary person that's part of the criminal justice system in a way. And her name is Kathleen Diaz. How are you doing, ma'am? I am just fine. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I am so glad that... You and I got connected. You reached out on uh, social media on the Facebook pages uh, under your your the rural badge um, Facebook page, and we got to chit chatting. And I end up finding out that you're quite the writer for Police One of all things. Of all things, yes, I have the blog under a pen name, and uh, I write for a column under my own name for Police One. Okay, what is it like? Before we really dig into your story and all that, what is it like being a writer these days? Um, you don't make much money. You make basically a nice little trickle of pocket money if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
the internet has made it extremely easy to be a writer. And I finally decided, yes, I could call myself that when I could see the hits on my blog page and tell that people are actually reading this stuff and they're sharing it. And then they're, I'm actually getting some feedback. It's not just me talking into the wind any longer. Okay. Yeah. I, I, well, that's one thing that's probably never changed for writers is they don't get paid much. That's true. Yeah. Unless you're just that diamond in the rough that is able to write a book about their writing. No, no. And I'm, I'm not really a novelist. I am a storyteller, but um, they tend to come in short form and they tend to be a little, well, for the, for police one, a little more newsy than that, more current events and more analysis and things like that on the blog. There's just a, there's a lot of what I think about what's going on. So, yeah. Well, in a kind of the premise of this podcast, but in a world where culturally um, lack of communication has always been a downfall with police work and the criminal justice system in itself now because of the internet and programs like Zoom and Restream like what I use and Instagram or all these uh, LinkedIn, there's all these other platforms for us to communicate and get out things that normally never, never could before. And I think we're still in the infancy for that stuff, but I think we're getting better at it. And Police One was one of the trendsetters when it comes to sharing information amongst police and the community, even though I don't think their intentions were at first to share with the community. No, I don't think they were. Um, and I think probably one of the things that broadens that footprint just a little bit is bringing in perspectives that aren't all just by cops for cops. Um, yes. There is some value to being outside looking in. Um, you know, I would never, for instance, feel qualified to do a tactical breakdown on something. But um, I have more of a communications and marketing and writing and teaching background. I've never studied criminal justice. I haven't been a law enforcement officer. And so there are some perspectives, I think, that I'm kind of seeing from outside, from above, um, that that are different than a law yeah. someone who is strictly law enforcement writing about law enforcement. It can be a little... It can get a little inbred. I think it's I think it's important to get outside perspectives because you 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 get comfortable, you get used to doing things, um, you lose uh, that kind of that sense of who you were before you became in law enforcement. Uh, I I try to constantly reflect back like how I used to think before awesome. I became a cop. That's you awesome. Know? I come from a family that. Um, most of the men in my family are either law enforcement or military. My father was military and my son is. Um, my husband was law enforcement for 27 years. And um, there can be a tendency in those kind of personalities to be a little bit linear, mm -hmm. um, to be a little bit literal. Um, to And and some, some things take a little more imagination, a little more what if, a little more, well, how does this connect to that? And that's one of the things I'm good at. I tell stories. And, and I make connections. Um, I've got a new piece that'll be coming up this month um, about a historical event in Missouri. Um, and to me, the connection to several very recent current events was just absolutely right in your face. And so okay. those are the sorts of things that I like to do. Nice. Okay. So let's, before we get deep into your stories and uh, the meat and potatoes of what you do, um, where are you from? What? How did you even get to this path 
okay, because you're not a cop. Did you ever want to be a cop? I know you said you had some military in the family and stuff. So I'm just curious where the, uh, the draw came from. Um, I kind of did, but when I was, you know, like a young teenager and stuff, uh, and then, uh, a friend that already was one disabused me of that idea. It was, you know, the eighties and I'm, I'm, you can't really tell here, but I'm like five feet tall. <laughs> and so he was looking at me as a five foot tall 16 year old who didn't weigh a hundred pounds at the time and went I wouldn't want to work with you and I went oh and it kind of hurt my feelings but I thought well maybe I should start making another plan and that made sense and you know you change the idea of what you want to do about a million times at that age yeah. um, but I was a military brat and my father didn't retire until I was a freshman in college so I grew up primarily on Air Force bases all over the place. Yeah. yeah. All right. And um, so, yeah, he was actually stationed uh, at Dias there in Texas a couple of different times uh, when I was really young. And uh, so we moved a lot. Um, I was around uniform culture all the time growing up, and I missed it very much when my dad retired. It was, it was seriously everything that I ever knew. And uh, I got married right out of college, and uh, the guy that I married had already been a deputy sheriff for three years at okay. that time. And so honestly, growing up as a military brat was a pretty good preparation for being a cop's wife. Um, okay. It, it was. I mean, I was already used to um, the irregular schedules. I was used to the uniforms, um, you know, the bullets in my jewelry box. That was a little bit of a learning curve. Um <laughs> You know, yeah. why, why are those there? And when, you know, and that's like totally natural. Why are you asking this question? Um, but um, our very first meal as a married couple, I was 21 and he was 24 and he was working, you know, overnights. And so I was super proud to have put my meal on the table at 1130 at night. And he came in, sat down, got a code three call and left lights and siren <laughs> down the driveway. And we'd been married like three days. And I'm standing there looking at the meal going, all righty then. So this is my life now. At you know? least he knows you made it. Exactly. Exactly. He That's knew I made it. And God bless him. He yeah. knew where the microwave was. So I ate yeah. my meal, cleaned the kitchen and went to bed. I and, promise and, you, he felt horrible. Well, you know what, though? It, it really didn't upset me. And that was partly because of the way I grew up. It just right. it's like, well, all righty, then yeah. whatever, you know. Um, this was way pre-internet and cell phones and all those sorts of things. But I had, you know, a cat to keep me company and I had lots of books and, you know, mm -hmm. and that was okay. I grew up honestly with my mother modeling that for me. And uh, so it, it wasn't quite the, as big a culture shock as it could have been. Yeah. And it, that's, it's an important thing to kind of point out because some of the things that people that aren't in our lifestyle um, didn't grow up around chain of command. They didn't grow up. It doesn't have to be cop life. It could be military. It can be firefighters, um, ambulance people, people that work in the ER. All these people that work wonky schedules um, can get held over, can, you know, schedule can change on the drop of a hat. Um, it is a, it, if you are not mentally prepared for that, when you get into a relationship with somebody that has that, I think that's one of the things that us as first responders don't take the helm very well educating that significant other in the courting process. Um, I worked as, a, well, let's preface this. Full-time jobs for spouses are hard to come by in small towns, which is primarily where I've lived all my married life. Mm -hmm. So I substitute taught at high schools for like decades. And, um, 
one of the things that I always found super useful is expressing clear expectations. This is what's going to happen. These are my expectations. This is what success looks like. Um, And we very often don't go into relationships with those. And we don't have those frank talks about this is what's normal. And if this happens, it's not personal. And always have a plan B because (laughs) plan A is always going to go off the rails. And and with and it doesn't matter, guy or girl. If you, if you're a guy and you're getting into a relationship with a female cop, we'll go with cops because I know that the best. Um, it I, there's like this whole allure to the the uniform, and I get it. In the in the cop life, if you're not if you're the the person that's not familiar with that culture, and I think they both sides get their blinders on because the you know the officer he's or she's trying to get into a relationship, which it's harder for cops to do and stay in one, a healthy one. Um, but on the other side of the house, the the, the non-military, non-cop person getting into that relationship, there's a lot of allure there, but I think we get blinded, and by the time that blindness starts to wear away, we're in it. And now those expectations that should have been made clear and, and understood like, look, this is what my life is going to be like probably for the, at least the next eight to 10 years, unless they rank up and move out of that, get into an office spot or whatever it is, supervisor role. But I don't think we do enough. That'd be a good article. If you don't have one like that already. That's true. <laughs> what can you um, expect? You know, what's normal? Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. But I, um, so, Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think it almost made it easier that, I mean, we got married in 1987. So Mm -hmm. there was no social media. There were no cell phones. There was no expectation of, of instant feedback or instant contact. I couldn't text him during his shift. Um, And I see, you know, things like that creating a lot of tension where, you know, it was my normal for him to leave for the evening and he wasn't going to be back until 3 or 3.30 in the morning, or if it was Graves, not until daylight. Um, mm-hmm. So other than a meal break, which might or might not happen, um, yeah. you know, my form of contact, if he was going to be held over or something, might be a phone call from dispatch. You know, Mrs. Diaz, this is not an emergency, but I just wanted to pass on to you that. Oh, okay. All right. Good to know. Put it in. Go back to sleep. You know, yep. but it wasn't, you know, sitting there by the cell phone. Why didn't he answer? You know, there wasn't such a thing. And honestly, I think that made it a lot easier. Yeah. Um, because I, we went through the transition before cell phones were on duty to uh, having cell phones. Yeah. I, me and my, co- my wife, um, we got to, um, I don't know how to put it, but we, we learned our, our own rule set. I'm like, she fully understood like we could be mid conversation texting or mid conversation on the phone. And I'll just say, I got to go. Boom. Yep. Click. And that's it. And she understood that. Like she, like that was a part of the deal. But like I said, we're a little different. We grew up together, grew into everything together. Um, even though she didn't grow up in that lifestyle. Um, so we, we made the rules and and figured it out as we went because we had such good communication prior. So, which is another problem that I see with a lot of cops. They, they they talk to their, their coworkers very easily. Uh, then they get home and they don't say, but three words, you know, so (laughs) it's, it's a common problem in the police world, but all right. 
So let's 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 get into you a little more. Um, so you 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 get with your husband. He had been on the department three years. Um, small town agency type thing. It was. Um, it was a sheriff's department in the Sierra foothills. So, okay. Yeah. So right. out, outside of the Stockton area and uh, one of those touristy sorts of towns on a two lane highway where the population triples every Friday night because <laughs> it, yeah, it's seriously. Yeah. So, you know, you still have the same size sheriff's office, but um, all the tourists come in to do, you know, God help you. It's the 4th of July or, mm. you know, they're coming in to camp and hike and fish in the summertime. And then there was a small ski resort up the hill. And so it, it was probably within two hours of San Francisco. So if they weren't going to Tahoe, they were coming through the middle of our town. And oh. you don't get any more officers to deal with them. They just, they're just there, you know. And you kind of have to be nice to them because a lot of the money comes through there. But somehow you still never have any money. Yeah. All right. So dealing with, with the small town stuff, it, also brings up the point that that's a good thing to to kind of um share from your perspective is if your husband arrests somebody in a small town and then you go to a restaurant by yourself or you go to the store by yourself and then guess who may be there that's a possibility in your life um it is very much like i said i I substitute taught for a really long time and you know one upside of that is you end up knowing this much about that many things on the other hand, um, yeah, you're going to see seriously like every kid of every person that ever got arrested. Um, if you live in a small enough town like the last one we lived in um, before he retired, there might only be one school. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, there's like one school, one grocery store, you know, two banks, two hardware stores and one drug store. You are going to see people. They will know where you live. Um, I remember uh, one of the police departments that that uh, my husband worked for a little later when we moved away, when we realized we were too close to the bay and would never be able to afford a, a home or a family. Um, so we moved even further north, and uh, I was in a, a math class one day that was, it was a, kind of a remedial math class. Not like, okay. you know, but it was a big class. So kids that are making up credits or whatever. The police chief's son was in that class. And he was sitting at the very front with just like his arms crossed and his head down the whole time because the whole rest of the class was like on a revolving door from juvie. Oh. And okay. I actually, next time I saw them because I tutored him in Spanish as well. And so when I saw his mom the next time, I'm like, he probably doesn't talk to you about what's going on at school, but you need to talk to the counselor and he needs to be not in that room. Yeah. And she had no idea, you know, and, and he's being a teenage boy. He's not going to go home and go, everybody's being mean to me. You know, yeah. um, he was just clamming up and shutting down. And yeah. uh, so I was like, this is kind of what's going on because some of the students I mean, I like teenagers. I wouldn't work at schools that long if I didn't. So I have a tendency to go, oh, no, they're all fine. And it's like, well, no, so, some of these had done some really gnarly things. Yep. And and they needed not to be in the same class with the police chief's son. He was really having a hard time. Okay. Yeah. that I would have been that kid in that math class, by the way. I was oh, in, me too. Yeah. I was so bad I, in math. That's if why I, I like... I can I can t- I can tutor you in English and Spanish and economics and all kinds of stuff. Um, math I defaulted to business math really really quickly and that was about the end of it. 
Yeah, yeah, there's no way. I hated math. Oh, well, math hated me, too, so. It does. Uh, it's, a, it's a mutual no, thing. No love loss for me, but. All right, so you're, your husband retires. You're, you're a writer. Now, how did, what drew you to writing? What do you write about? And, um, yeah, go into that. Um, I've always done some writing uh, for a period of time where I needed to work full-time. I worked in print advertising and also on the side was writing for and editing a quarterly travel guide um, in far northern California. And it was a lot of fun. I got to do some really cool fluffy things, um, you know, go on a dog sled ride and write about it and go on a hot air balloon ride and write about it and all these kinds of things. Um, so it had been there a little bit and then the older I got and the more free, that's one of the cool things about being a cop's wife. As you get older, you discover what really actually matters. You're kind of afraid of everything when you're young. You know, you're upset about the job. You're afraid of getting him in trouble. You're afraid of people judging you if you have an opinion. And that for a woman, that's a really awesome thing to get older and start going, you know what? I don't care. <laughs> yeah. And um, as social media became something that I got used to using, I started having more and more of opinion and honestly driving my friends absolutely bananas about it. Like, shut up. We're tired of hearing about that. You're kind of hammering on it. Um, and uh, being from small towns and with my husband working in small towns for decades at that point, um, I'm seeing the news because I'm a total news hound and going, nobody's covering this story over here. You know, it's in the local papers. And then it disappears. And then there's another and another and another. And so I'm like bringing them up over and over and over again. And uh, the page Humanizing the Badge was just getting started. And bless their hearts, they made the mistake of asking, you know, what do you want to see more of? What do you want to hear about? And I went, oh, me. Pick me. Um, you, why, why isn't anybody covering this? Why isn't anybody telling these stories? This happened. That happened. And one of their admins finally messaged me and said, oh, why don't you do it? <laughs> <laughs> and I went okay so I did so I, I started the Facebook page the rural badge and I used a pen name because my husband was still active at that time and um, Charlie is short for Charlotte Charlotte Pitt is a, a literary character I identify with and uh, but Charlie is also a nice androgynous pen name and uh, the page was not in, ever intended to be about me so I really didn't care whether anybody knew whether I was male or female and um, not until about the past year did anybody ever know that I was a wife oh. because that was not the point. I'm not writing a police wife's page. I'm not writing about that perspective. Um, I'm telling the stories that officers can't tell and making the complaints that they can't say out loud and saying the things their wives probably want to say, like, don't call him a hero because he got in a wreck and got hurt when you knew their brakes were bad and didn't fix them. Um, I can say that kind of stuff. And I don't right. know if those things are a problem in a big agency because that's never been our experience. But in small agencies, they are. And uh, the poorer the area, the bigger a problem it is. Okay. All right. I like uh, I like what you said there that you get to tell the stories for the cops that they don't get to tell themselves because that is a that is that is <laughs> that's true. There's a lot of things that cops can't say. Yes, and, and I feel like those of us who can't be disciplined or fired for it need to. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. 
Well, I'm going to share what we got right now for you while we're talking about it. Sure. Get this out of the way here. So what if you're listening to the podcast, we have uh, we have Kathleen's page up here, the rural badge. Uh, It is the rural badge dot com. All spelled out T-H-E-R-U-R. A-L-B-A-D-G-E dot com. So um, we're looking at that right right now. So can you explain what we're looking at? Um, this is my blog page. And okay. uh, if you go to the page that says why the rural badge on there, there is a literal explanation, a page long one of why I started it. Um, and mainly it came down to I was having a conversation um <laughs> with some ladies I met on the National Police Wives Association back when it was a forum. And I grew frustrated when I realized we were not talking about the same thing at all. And that a lot of that stemmed from where we lived and where my husband worked. Um, Okay. And so I explained things like, it's really hard to come by childcare in a rural area. So that makes it really hard for the spouse to have a, a job, especially Cops tend to marry nurses. Nurses also work shift work who watches the kid when you're both working overnights on a weekend. Um, Things like my husband has never had a partner. Not ever in 27 years. Always in a car alone. Exactly. And, um, you know, that when he called for backup, it might be 20 minutes away, but it might be three hours. And so effectively he worked alone his entire career. And, you know, I was talking to ladies from like, you know, Detroit and Chicago and they, they were trying, they were being really sweet, but they really had no idea what I was talking about. And I got thinking, if that makes me feel alone, I know there's thousands of other people out there that feel like they are and they're not. They just don't have any way to connect and they don't have anyone telling their stories. Yeah. Um, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I've talked to plenty of guys that are out in sticks, uh, so to speak, um, working, you know, usually for either a deputy for sheriff's department, um, and, or, or a DPS officer, mm-hmm. um, talked to a lot of DPS troopers. Uh, they, they know they pull they're pulling a car over. They put the dispatch out and you know, they're, their buddy that's working, you know, a a county over, that's it. That's who they've got. Exactly. Or, or maybe a sheriff's department that, that happens to be monitoring or has the ability to monitor their, their, their channel. That's another problem. People don't think about in the cities in the big cities, we hear everybody, we hear each other. And if we don't, the the communication's still all in the same room at dispatch and dispatch will plug them in because they hear what's going on versus somebody that's out in in the boonies area and it's them and that little dispatcher and that's that's all they've got and it's scary it's scary stuff well there's even some places where um the radios don't work radios don't work and cell phones don't work (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know they just one of one of the uh, articles that i wrote was talking about de-escalation and i asked for input for it on the Facebook page and, and got a discussion going. And honestly, some of the response was just absolutely brilliant. And a whole lot of it came down to, you really do learn to talk to people differently and use your words when you know it is just you and them. And that's all there will be. Um, And uh, it's, it's, I, I don't like to set it up 
as a competition or as a comparison. And that is a place where people tend to go fairly naturally. Um, you know, is it, is it, is it harder to, is it more dangerous to, you know, this or that? And I like to describe it as being more like parallel worlds. And sometimes they intersect, but they're really kind of the same, only different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no way that I'm going to be able to tell a corrections officer what his life is like working in a jail. Yeah. Knowing everybody he works around is a criminal. Everybody. And Everybody. he can't leave. <laughs> and he can't leave. Yeah, he's trapped. You can't so you want to talk about uh, necessity to be a wardsmith and de-escalate things, you know, I my correction officers, I give them props because, man, uh, at any moment, it's them and there's 30, 40 bad guys just standing around that are mm-hmm. proven criminals, you know. Luckily, they don't maul you. They could at any time. Um, so your words definitely make a big difference. And the same goes between a sheriff's department versus a city cop versus a trooper. We all, yes, we are in a law enforcement capacity, but we do very different things. Very different. I mean, um, me as a city cop, I'm constantly, I'm, I'm going from call to call to call to call. Backup is usually no more than five minutes away. Um, same for fire medical, everything is right there for the most part um, versus, you know, your county cops and stuff like that. And they're talking to people they know personally. I could run across a thousand people that day and have never seen any of those people ever in my life versus uh, the county cop that's talking to Frank, who's this veterinarian and got drunk and is having a PTSD moment that night. And now you got to come over and handle that domestic than see him at church on Sunday. Yes. Yeah. We, I've actually had, um, a neighbor come and knock on the door while my husband was asleep because he worked nights and, uh, and, and well, I want to talk to him. Well, you can't cause he's asleep. What's going on? Well, it turned out that he was really angry with another neighbor and he wanted to fight him, but he had a little bit of a record. He wasn't a serious bad guy, but he had a little bit of a record. And he wanted to know how much trouble would he be in if he hit the other neighbor? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not. Is it worth the squeeze? <laughs> he did, you know, and he was like, and he really liked my husband. Well, I respect him, and I and and I don't want to jam him up, but but I just want to know how much. But I'm like, um, well, first I'm not going to wake him up to ask him that, and in <laughs> second place, you know, his name was Ralph. Ralph, you you can't do that. Just you know, okay. so I'm standing at the door talking to the guy. Being the cop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you 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 can't do that. Don't do that. And I, yeah, he is annoying, and yeah, he did do that, but you know, and he was just like, well, I just. I, I, you know, he didn't want my husband mad at him because he really liked him. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> you know? Well, the underlying factor on that is he, it's in like in most cases, it sounds like he just needed somebody to vent to. He did to talk to. And he did, and I've had a couple of people ask me, how, "How do you keep your page in order without you know brawls breaking out in the comments and you know trolls all over the place?" I'm like, substitute teaching in middle schools. It's not that different. <laughs> You know, yeah. and that's kind of what this guy was because he was kind of drunk, you know, and mm-hmm. he was upset and he was drunk and yeah. he was my neighbor. He wasn't really a bad guy. I pretty much leave um, not I've only had a couple trolls um, and I think they were testing me to see if I would try to shut down their speech. And yeah. I don't unless you come on and you're doing saying something hateful, which I haven't had happen yet. Yes. Um but if you, yeah, if you're using hate speech, okay, that's an easy no-brainer. I'll get rid of that. But for the most part, I let people work it out. I'm like, 
Listen, and, and I'll even jump on and be devil's advocate if I feel like a bunch of people are teaming up on one person. Sure. And just to, just to, cause I like to get the conversations going, but you're right. It's a <laughs> dog eat dog sometimes when you got different, not even just different police, but just different first responders talking about something or spouses of first responders trying to chime up to defend the honor of their their particular one. Yeah, their particular one, yeah. You go, he's a big boy. He can do that, you know. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, yeah, I, that's, that is, I, you've been up a lot longer than I have. So, that, I'm sure it's only a matter of time. We've only been going a little over a year, so. It depends but. a lot on the topic. Um, I have a tendency because um, the really dangerous bad guys that are long-term, not people passing through or, or you know, we lived in a place that was a high intensity drug trafficking area, but, you know, gangs and that sort of thing are kind of transient problems in remote areas. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of anti-government sentiment that expresses itself in sovereign citizen type stuff and things like that. Oh, Whenever yeah. I post something about that sort of a topic, that's where they tend to come up and they're, they're mostly nasty and mostly yeah. threatening. So I, I don't engage those. They just, they just get banned into. They talk about putting liens on your house and all that crap. Um, liens on your house, or following you home and setting it on fire, or yeah. you know, I'm going to come take over your courthouse and kidnap your judge and prosecutor, or you know, it runs the whole gamut. And and a lot of it, where we lived, was violent. And okay, that was you know one one of the articles that I wrote there for police one um, was an analysis of three different books that I read that were about attacks on rural law enforcement. Um, uh, two out of the three were specifically anti-government extremists. And I identified with that because that's where the motion detectors and the the lights and stuff on our house came from, was from that sort of stuff, those sort of people trying to follow my husband home or making threats. It wasn't, you know, your friendly neighborhood gangbanger because mostly those were imports and they were pretty thin on the ground. So... They didn't act super tough because there was only one of them and they're not usually that tough in one at a time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm processing that's uh, I, the sovereign citizen thing is a big deal all it over is. right now. It is. Um, and for those listening, sovereign citizens, I'm trying to give a, cause it's actually a very complex topic, but um, it is. And it's gotten very, very broad. Yeah, but the, the, the simple version to put it is they, they're they acting as though they are separate from the nation in a way by using the Articles of Confederation. Um, they, they will basically try to, if you pull them over in a traffic stop, you'll see these videos where they're trying to say, I'm traveling, I am, you know, on my own, uh, not monarchy, but... They're, they're, I can't remember what they what they call themselves. They're their own sovereignty. I'm sorry, and and that you don't have a right as an officer because they don't recognize your authority. And then the next thing you know, they put a lien on your house. They they do they'll serve you papers, and you just get inundated with all this stupid paperwork stuff. And um, it can be a nightmare if you are not trained in it as an officer how to deal with it. Um, fortunately for me, I've seen it. I just I don't engage. It's like, all right, here's your stuff. This is what I need. If they don't want to do it, they get 
uh, ask, tell, make, basically. This is what you're going to do. This is what I need. They don't do it. Get the sergeant out there, and we give you a final chance, and then we pull you out of the car arrest you. We don't talk. We, there's just no conversation going on because conversation is what gets you down that rabbit hole. It's a seventh grade substitute teacher thing. Just like, no, yeah. we're not. Yes, yeah. we are not peers. Yeah. We're not engaging in this. Yeah. <laughs> My clearly expressed expectations are that. <laughs> yes, this is what I need. You either give it to me or these are the consequences. And that's it. If you want to argue, this isn't court. We don't argue here on the side of the road. So I'm not going to argue. This is what I need. You going to give it to me? Yes or no? Uh, you're going to keep talking? All right. Hey, Sarge, I need you here. <laughs> you're just going to keep talking. I, I'll walk away from the car. I don't need to talk. So, but you got to be careful. They've, they've killed officers. They have. They've, I've seen, there's some gnarly videos out there of these sovereign citizens doing that stuff. So it's a, it's a big safety issue. It's not just, it's not just this paper pushing stuff. That's a part of it, but yeah, it's a, it's a serious threat, but in your, your writings in, in this stuff, what are some of the top things that you've noticed over the years that, these smaller, you know, out there agencies are, are getting railroaded on. Officer safety issues are huge. And my probably two biggest pet causes, one is officer safety. And the other is continuing care for officers who are wounded in the line of duty, especially if they're disabled and not able to return back to work. Um, And part of that is because there is this prevailing myth, I think, that people tend to pick up from TV and the movies that there's a magical system that kicks in when officers get hurt that takes care of them. And in especially in smaller departments, um, the reality is that most officers who can't return to work within a set amount of time, and it's usually either six months or a year, are simply terminated, not retired. Right. And Yeah. And, and there is a lot of uh, a lot of pain that goes with that, and it's not just physical. It's a feeling of abandonment, um, and there's a huge financial bite um, because, of course, the family's health insurance goes with that immediately, um, that sort of thing. And it's like we lived in California for all of my husband's career, and California messes up a lot of stuff. But there are some really pretty solid workplace protections. Um, there is a very strong uh, Peace Officers Bill of Rights uh, that's you know protected my husband's career at least once, and he's been able to use it as a lever once he was a department head um, to get things that um, his officers needed. And uh, in the states where officers don't have those kinds of protections, um, they're really kind of dangling, you know, um, officers that have been punished for political speech, um, officers that have been forced to quit their jobs to, you know, participate in a political process. Um, there's actually two different states that I know of that I've been told specifically by readers um, where being seen publicly to like or share anything that I write on the rural badge is considered a discipline offense. Um, what? I've been to- yeah, I've been told that by readers um, in some parts of South Carolina and in Oklahoma. Apparently, Charlie Pitt is a dirty word in parts of Oklahoma, and it's because I will call out leadership um, that doesn't look after their officers. And it's like, you know, you can talk to me all you want about your tax base, 
But in 2021, if 2022, if you can't find a grant to get your guys' vests, that's on yeah. you. Holy yeah. shit. Yo, I'm not even kidding. Um, I actually had an officer not three days ago send me pictures of tires from his patrol unit. And one was at the beginning of the shift, and it was a picture that he had actually sent his department head. I'm like, can I use this? Oh, yeah, just leave my name out of it. Okay, no problem. And he says, oh, and this one's even better. Sends me a picture of it. This was in the middle of the shift. Now the tire is in the trunk, and it's blown. And. Oh and the conversation apparently went along the lines of, but it's not time to replace the tires yet. Oh, and see, geez. that's the sort of thing that it's like, you know, when my husband left that, that Sierra Foothills department, when we were young, part of the reason he left is because at that point, they were driving patrol cars around with cases of oil in the trunk for topping up at every stop because they were burning that much fluid and there just wasn't any money to replace it. All the ammunition that the department owned was on the deputy's belts. And they had not had range for a year by the time he left and took a job with another department. Jeez. So the liability is just outrageous. And those are the sorts of things that I don't necessarily see in bigger departments. And the officers that work for those small departments, they can't publicly make those complaints because they will be disciplined. Um, and in a lot of states, especially where at-will employment is the law, they'll probably be fired and they'll have no recourse because their bosses don't need any to fire them. They can just, yeah. they, they don't like you, so you're gone. Well, they have a lot more leverage these days because it's getting harder and harder to get police officers. Um, one recommendation I I've, I've would tell people, this is coming from a police perspective, um, and I would want my citizens to know things like this, but um, I would be telling my guys or, or write an article about just keeping, keeping track, keep a log. Cause when something bad happens, you've got a record. Like, look, I annotated this back in yes. two months ago and here it is. And they did nothing. So yeah, you may get shit can, but you're going to win the lawsuit at the end of the day because you had proof and they did nothing about it. So, but well, or, you know, if you can't anymore, your wife may. I mean, we had a gotcha file in our email, you know, copies oh, really? of copies of, you know, things that had been sent on, you know, I've made, I've advised you of this liability and mm -hmm. therefore, you know, I can't, I can't make you fix it, but yeah. now, you know, but yes, it's absolutely. Official record once you've sent it to them. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. I mean, but there are places where a line officer would be disciplined or fired even for doing that. You know, mm -hmm. and it may be unjust, but, you know, one of the things that one of my writer, not writers, readers, uh, who was an industrial hygienist taught me about, and I didn't know that when I started this stuff, was that unless a state has its own OSHA that exceeds federal standards, then that state defaults to Fed OSHA standards and government agencies, including law enforcement, are explicitly exempted from safety regulations. Yeah, what? I know. I didn't know that either, but it's true. I can send you the documentation for it. So, Holy shit. For instance, California has Cal OSHA, and it's actually quite stringent. And because it's state, it applies across the board. So like when my husband was a department head of a small department there, he was able to go pull up government code and say, you have to supply them with basic safety gear. You know, high-vis vests, ballistic vests, 
you know, these sorts of things. He was able to use that as a lever. In the states, I think there's 27 states that default to FEDOSHA. Um, those do not apply. If you're a paint contractor and you supply your guy with a faulty ladder and he gets hurt, you're going to hear about it. But if you're a police chief and you let him drive a vehicle you know has faulty tires and brakes, there is no regulation that can be brought against you there. Oh, my God. Well, you brought up um, getting hurt in the line of duty. Um, have you ever heard? So on my webpage, uh, the Two Cops, One Donut website, I have a sponsors and charities page. Yes. Um, one of the charities that uh, it, it's just the charity, they don't, anybody listening, they don't pay me for anything, um, the charities that I have up here, but the one is the Wounded Blue. Have you ever heard of the Wounded Blue? I have heard a lot about them, and I know they do a lot of good work. They've got some really good people there. Yeah, so I believe that was started by Randy Sutton, who's uh, just a good dude. He's uh, right here. If you're listening to the podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm circling my mouse around Randy. But he basically started it, and it's for exactly what you're talking about. Uh, officers getting screwed over, they get hurt in the line of duty, and then they get shit-canned because they couldn't get back within a certain amount of time. Um, I don't think that's fair. And uh, this lady right here, Lisa Ramsey, she works with me. Uh, oh. She works out of, my, out of my department. Oh, um, awesome. But, uh, yeah, so Wounded Blue, anybody, if you're like, is there anything for officers out there, if they do get hurt and their department starts to try to screw them over, reach out to the Wounded Blue. Uh, it's definitely an organization that I uh, I support, um, believe in. It's a nonprofit, uh, all, all good stuff. Um, but, yeah, Randy Sutton's the – the headliner for that. So, yeah, I was just curious if you'd ever heard of that. It's um, I am, and I think one of the biggest things that nonprofits like that are going to be able to do isn't just even the practical support or the peer counseling, all of which are necessary, but ultimately legislative advocacy for yeah. actual yeah. changes to practical things um, are going to what's going, they're what's going to make the difference long term. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Legislative change is always the pain in the butt. I'm doing one here um, for catalytic converter thefts, of all things. It's it's rampant, and the law doesn't help us as cops. There's nothing we can really do. That's terrible. I know. Unless I catch you in the act, I can't. There's nothing I can really do. I can pull over a vehicle and see that it's got 15 catalytic converters in the back, and I'm like, where did you get these? And he could just say, it's none of your business. And I'm I like, pick them up on the side of the road. Yeah. I I, there's nothing requiring him to prove ownership or anything like that. So um, my idea would be just like a credit card. If I find that you have two or more credit cards on you that aren't in your name and you're not willing to answer any questions, I can assume those are stolen. Mm -hmm. and I can arrest you and take those and then investigate further, get a hold of the person who it belongs to, find out if it's stolen, um, all of that. So, but not with a catalytic converter, which is even more rare to just have on your in your just, car with you. Especially more than one. <laughs> yeah, more than one. Yeah, exactly. What, what exactly yeah. would you be doing with those? Right. Yeah. Or if you're, you know, you work at a rec yard or anything like that, where you could actually explain it. Oh, you work at a record. You, Got any ID for that? Yeah, this is my work ID. Okay, cool. That makes sense. <laughs> but, you know, you're driving in a, a rundown Honda Civic, and it's got 17 catalytic converters in the back with 
two sawzaws and some flashlights. I'm like, I know what you did. There ain't much I can do about it. Is there anything there that would be like, you know, possession of burglary tools or things like that? Yeah, there, there's little things I could. Now, here's this is where it gets convoluted. I know that they went out, you know, just call it police expertise. I know that's what they did because they got the burglary tools. They're out at that time of night. They've got a history, you know, criminal history for stealing. All of this stuff makes sense, right? You write it down on paper. Awesome. And then I take that stuff and presume it to be stolen. These are burglary tools. And I arrest the guy. And I confiscate all the catalytic converters. Well, when you try to go to court, who's the victim? The state's not a victim. If it was the state being a victim, I could do something. But I have to prove who's the victim, who lost their catalytic converters. That's true because the state's only the victim. I know in California, the state is only the victim in a felony. So right, I'm or, sure. or you know, drug offense, or say, well, which is typically a felony too. But, um, yeah, so there's nothing I can do. And I've, I've tried to argue, like, any reasonable and prudent person would know that these are stolen. We can't – it's unrealistic to be able to find – the victim, because there's no serial numbers, VIN numbers, there's no markings that I can prove, you know. You get lucky every once in a while where you pull one of those guys over after they just cut one, and you can, you you know, the victim calls in or whatever it is, or you go to where they were seen last and you match it the cut up to a car, and you're like, all right, this fits this car that it came off of. I never thought about that. Yeah. So there's, there's little ways that you can, but that's so rare. It doesn't happen. And they're so good now that as soon as they cut them and they're getting in the car to get away, they cut them again. So you can't match the cuts up. <laughs> so <laughs> what is it you want changed? Do you want them serialized or do you want the no, possession of I, them to be probable yes, cause? If you, if you cannot prove ownership and show like a title, just like you would yeah. with your vehicle, show like, me a bill of sale you know, for those. Yeah, show me where you got this. Yeah. yeah, and in if there's no reasonable explanation, then I'm just going to assume they're stolen, and that's where we're going to go from there. And honestly, illegal. how different would that be if you pulled them over and they had you know 17 candlesticks in their trunk or yeah. you know whatever? It's like why, why? Yeah, yeah, and and I you, you're gonna inquire like. Why do you have, you know, all these candlesticks in here? That doesn't make sense. And, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. But, um, yeah, it's it's a pain, and we definitely need to get the laws adjusted. But dealing with legislative stuff when you – because this is how you find out there's a problem with laws and there's a problem in it the is. system is uh, cops go through it. They're like, shit, like I, <laughs> we getting hammered in all these catalytic converter thefts, but we can't do nothing about it unless we catch them in the act. And people get very angry because you can't do anything about it. Yeah. And, you know, it all it takes is a city council member to get his stolen, which actually happened. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so they started going down that path and they're like, all right, I'm talking to one of the legislative writers. Tell me what you need. And I'm like, this is what I need. And I just write up this big paper. This is the tools we need because this is where we're lacking. We don't have the backing here. So I need this verbiage. And, uh, yeah, so we're, we're, we're working it, but it's a long process. You it know, is a long talking, process, but I'm a I, huge, huge believer in 
the legislative advocacy and honestly using the press to your advantage. A lot of cops don't like to talk to reporters. They don't want to yeah. talk to any, you know, news industry, whatever at all. Even writing for Police One, I've, I've had to really like, okay, here's my column. This is what I write. Read through some of it and get back to me and stuff like that because so you, you what? You're a who? Yeah. You know, and it's like, I, I'm not here to play a gotcha game. I'm an advocate. I am an advocate for rural officers. This is what I do. Yeah. Um, but the suspicion is there. And the fact is, if you take the time, this is the communications background with me coming out. If you mm -hmm. take the time to build the relationships and purposely open some of those doors, you can use that to your advantage. It doesn't yeah, have absolutely. to be adversarial. Yeah. And again, this is kind of why I got this podcast stuff awesome. going is I'm trying to give people a voice in it in a, in a general sense. Um, because, you know, if, if you never sat down and talked to a person that writes articles about police and for police on a police page, how the hell are you going to know where they get their stuff from? How are you going to know Absolutely. how they're able to do that? So you got to have the conversations and it doesn't have to be uh, co confrontational. It doesn't have to like it just can be it, it is what it is. Here's the information. She's telling it. Take it for yep. what it is. I'm not trying to challenge anything uh, necessarily. I'll play devil's advocate from time to time. Um, As you should. Do that. Yeah, and I could do that right now. So yeah. how is somebody like you who's never done the job going to write about police stuff? Um, I'm very careful about choosing my topics, for one thing. And I try to be very careful of my voice. I know that I'm an outsider, and I know what I'm good at, and I also know what I don't know. So, for instance, I don't do tactical breakdowns. I try not to criticize procedure. Um, those are things I do not do and I have never done. I'm not going to write an article about police use of force unless I'm writing it as a conversation with experts in that field. Um, and okay. I like to, I, I'm a slow writer, which is probably another one of my obstacles to ever making any money um, because I research everything absolutely stinking to death and cite everything absolutely to death. And I like to actually get people on the phone or on video and have conversations with them. Um, I like to do interviews. Uh, and that's how I write about things that I don't know. But again, there are there are topics that I simply do not cover. Um, and you can go through my list there and see more of, of what I like to do. Um, from a writer perspective, I describe it as features and analysis. I don't do hard news. Um, I d do topics that I can generally do at my leisure unless they're things like, um, okay, that second headline there, what a Washington Post article got wrong about small town policing. Um, that, that was fairly time valued because that was an analytical response to a really big paper that was trying to conflate the absolute dumpster fire at Uvalde with small town policing. Yeah. And the fact is that happened in a small town, but it was not a dumpster fire because it was in a small town. And so I addressed it from that perspective because small town policing is something that I know and I do I do know how to compare and contrast. And um, I have had the opportunity when I've done long term substitute gigs to to teach rhetoric and to teach persuasive speech and persuasive writing and things like that. And it's like, I can read that article and say, mm, no, that's not correct. And this is why it's not enough to just say, nah, nah, you got it wrong. You stink because no, yeah. he doesn't. He's a good writer. 
but he's a big city writer and he's writing from a big city perspective and he made a leap that for him uh, is to be expected, but he doesn't know what he doesn't know. Yeah. I and I'm scrolling through her article sure. while she's talking. There is a shitload of articles you've written. <laughs> um, I've been writing, uh, well, I've written about, an, well, a little more than an article a month since 2019. Okay. So there's a lot. Um, one of the research product projects that I have had going, and I just started this because of things that I was observing while I was writing, um, as I have been tracking the numbers of officers shot each year and the FOP does that and Leoka does that. Um, but what I do differently is I break it down according to population where the officers fell. And so okay. I actually go to every single incident. And if it's not immediately recognizable as a big city, um, I go and find the population and then I find it on a map to see, is this an isolated area? Is it a suburb? Is it actually part of a larger Metro, even though it has distinct boundaries um, and I break it out into two different small population areas. So I note the total numbers. And then if it is less than 30,000 population, I break it out into its own cell. If it's less than 11,000 population, I break it down yet again. And so I'm in my fourth year doing that. And I've been tracking to see because to me, when I'm pulling up these news articles and sharing them with people just from the, hey, this actually happens, you know, or like, Tell people it's like Horton, here's a who. We're Whoville down here going, we're here, we're here. And everybody yell as loud as we can because nobody knows that we're here because we're so small and so scattered. Um, so I'm, I'm like, this is a lot of officers getting hurt yeah. in places nobody's looking at. And and rural isn't isn't a size, it's, it's a place. So the way that my numbers are different, say, from Laoka is they are looking at state and local, and then they bred, they break local down into county or city. But then they totally separate out federal officers. That's a whole other table. Mm-hmm. And I'm throwing them all in one pot and only breaking it down by where it happened. So I don't care if they're a sheriff's deputy or if they're a state trooper or a game warden or um, an FBI agent. What I'm looking at is where it happened. Was this an FBI agent, but it was in BFE Montana? It goes into my pot. And I take note of that. And so there are several articles there on police. One, the most recent was from May with my analysis of those numbers, because there's a difference between data and anecdote. And my whole focus with that has been to get somebody bigger than me, somebody more important than me to take a look at this and go, these numbers are holding steady. And if anything, actually last year and this year, they're trending up. And why is that? Because I see a lot of communities allowing normalcy bias of this has never happened here, therefore it will never happen here as a reason not to train their officers up to modern standards, not to equip them with appropriate gear, whether it's rifle plates or a a custom-fitted vest or tourniquets, um, not to allow them to use patrol rifles, um, all those sorts of things, And, and it's... It's not true. It may not have happened in your town yet, but it will, and it has, and here I can show you. And so I have, I'm on my fourth spreadsheet now. Yeah. You know, just, it's, numbers are undeniable. So your numbers are finding that the officers that get hurt more often are in the smaller 
rural well areas. the weird thing is um <clears throat> they're really it's a really it's it's been until this year really steadily between 25 and 30 percent of the total officers who get hurt by felonious gunfire are in the smaller areas that i write about the weird thing is every single year so far um, the officers in the like 12,000 to 30,000, the numbers go way down. And that's usually what everybody expects, smaller place, smaller numbers. You get down to the below 11,000, which is everything down to the place with a pony and a post office. Mm-hmm. And the numbers go way back up again. And they do it every single year. This is the fourth year. They're doing it again this year. Um, and the fatalities um, have also been a steady at least 30% of the overall fatalities are in these smaller areas. Um, even though um, one of the stats I saw this past year is that 5% of the departments in the U.S. employ 64% of the officers. So that means the other 95% of departments are employing just that little number scattered over the whole U.S., but those officers are still representing at least 30% of the officers who are getting hurt. And last year, the fatalities um, in the areas I write about spiked up to 44%. And I updated the numbers this morning because I knew I'd be talking to you. And um, this year, it's actually so far, as of this morning, it was actually up to 49% of the fatalities. So what is your theory on what is causing causing this? I don't know necessarily what is actually causing the assaults. I think one of the problems that's causing the fatalities to be higher than it seems like they should be um, is distance from backup and distance from sophisticated trauma care. Because when I come across articles about officers who have survived really complex, devastating wounds that not only survived but recovered almost always they were within minutes if not less um, of a level one trauma center and a lot of times if it's in a city they also had attack med right there on the incident with them so there was somebody right there plugging the holes patching them up and and transporting them right away where um, there was an officer in oklahoma who was killed last week and it took two hours to find him Jeez. And so we don't know, you know, it's entirely possible. I don't know what his wounds were because they've been, the investigation is still very fresh. Yeah. The wounds may not have been survivable anyway, but there are a lot of situations where if you get help in less than that time, it really does increase your odds. That's why they call it the golden hour. Right. <laughs> um, yes. So that's, that's a theory. I can't prove it. I don't have whatever it would take to do that. But yeah, but I know that that can't help. And that's the one consistent thing that I see over and over and over. So let me, let me pose something. Tell me what you think. Sure. And, and I, I'm just theorizing here, but um, you're at a smaller department. The call load's going to be much less. The stuff you face, uh, the more serious stuff you face happens more spread out. Um, doesn't happen near as often versus um, city officers that, see that three four times a night sometimes you know weekends get hopping it's summertime you know you're constantly going really bad call to really bad call but because of your 
your training is backed up by continuously practicing what you learn because you're dealing with that shit all the time. You hone a skill set in that particular stuff that you're able to prevent violent things from occurring because you cut it off at the pass, if that makes sense. Um, whether you figured out a way to articulate your way out of it or you just you out-violenced your bad guy before he could get a chance to to escalate things. You know, um, I've had people ask me before, like, you smacked that guy. He didn't do anything. I'm like, he was well, gonna. What you didn't <laughs> Yeah, what you didn't see was he dropped his right leg back. He was clenching his fist, and I could see his jawline starting to flex. He was about to hit me. I'm now waiting to get hit. So I hit him first and, and knocked his oodle loop senseless, you know, and, and, and I put him in cuffs, and that was it. But what would have happened if I tried to sit there and him haul around and keep talking to the guy to the point where he – he hit me and made, or you know, tried to hit me, and then it turned into something even more violent than what people saw. So, out in the country areas and the more rural areas like that, that maybe that's a factor. And in these violent, these violent things, they they get more violent than they needed to be, not because it's anybody's fault. It's just lack of maybe training, lack of practice of the training that they've had, because maybe they've had the same exact training, but. Unless you see it a lot, like you, you don't get to deal with it near as often. That always could be a possibility, and that's one of the things that would need to be looked at. Um, uh, one of the things I've discovered the past year researching for articles um, is that there are a lot of states, fairly alarming number, um, where officers are allowed to patrol before they've actually attended academy for a certain number of you know, weeks or months or, or whatever, even s patrol solo in some cases. Um, there are also some states that require, I know, require oh no continuing education after the academy. Um, and the ones that do, um, even though, you know, hey, say like uh, California is one of the more stringent states in requiring continuing education and things like that, but still they only require... I think it's a total of 16 hours of perishable skills training updates every two years. And so that's broken down into, you know, probably, you know, four hours of weaponless defense and four hours of FATS training and four hours of EVOC and every two years. Really? And yeah, yeah. that's, that's it. And there are a lot of States that don't even require that. I, I think another possibility could be, and again, this is all just, you know, people ask me why. And so I have to sit and think about it. Um, I have a feeling some of the suspects may also behave differently when they know you will have no backup coming. Um, yeah. And that if they put you in the dirt, nobody's going to respond immediately. And they will probably be able to, you know, it's not going to, in, in your area, it's unlikely to turn into a days or weeks manhunt if somebody hurts one of you. Correct. And yeah. that could very well happen in a place where, there are also a lot of departments that don't have body cams or dash cams. So if the officer can't speak for himself or identify a suspect, they are back, honestly, like in the 70s or 80s for the tech they're using to try to identify them if they didn't have a dash camera or a body camera. Um, I'm so glad you brought this up. <laughs> things like I'm that. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is my big push right now. I am a technology-driven policing guy. Yes. Like I... If you can't give me bodies, 
I, and I know that's a problem. If you can't give me bodies and you have to give me technology, you yep. got to give me the equalizer. Yeah. So let's, let's fix, let's fix all the world's problems right here, right now. So, um, with these rural police officers, I, the first thing I would start investing in is the tech. Um, yep. they're like Axon. Um, they have this technology coming out, I believe where it's a drone that is attached to your light rack. Yes. And I know that sounds like kind of too futuristic for some people, but Not think about this. You're out on a, a, a traffic stop. You you pull this car over. As you get out, the drone deploys. There's and your overwatch. It, and, it, and it comes over, and it just does a 360 of the vehicle and tries to get a good video angle of everybody on the inside. Yep. And then it just goes back down and lands mm-hmm. right where it was at. It, it's got its own track. And it knows where to go. Um I think that would keep officers a little bit safer because once that becomes public knowledge that that's a thing and that you're not going to get away now from, from doing that, there's going to be some sort of video evidence of who you were, um, what your vehicle looks like and all of that, that it, it may put bad guys in the, in more of a place to not act, you know, just, just like body cams do. I think that's brilliant. I would love to see something like that. In fact, the the newest article that um, just broke for me for Police One was about drones. Um, it went up last night, and and that's exactly the thing. It's like the the departments I write about don't have access to things like helicopters, and a lot of them yeah. don't have. You know, there there is no backup. There is no whatever. Um, so yes, why can't those be your force multipliers? They're not that expensive. Then again, some of the departments that I'm talking about, you will have a department head look you in the face and say a $40 tourniquet costs too much. Yeah. So there is um, there's a, a, a mindset that needs to be overcome. I still have some readers that will argue with me, well, they just can't help it. They can't afford it. If you can't afford to do it right, then you can't afford to have law enforcement. I'm sorry, that sounds harsh, but that's yeah. why I'm saying it and not someone else. There is no particular right to a local police department or your own particular pet deputy. You don't yeah. get to have that. If you or, can't do it right, you're just outsourcing your dirty work on the cheap. Yeah. And it, I think it's a, it's critical. There's so much grant money out there, there is. that people just don't, they, there's no training in that stuff for, for cops. They figure that stuff out on the, you, you know, hopefully you have that one savvy guy. He's like, Oh, I heard there's a grant for this. Let me look. And they, trial and error, learn how to fill out the paperwork for it. Then all of a sudden that's your grant guy. Yes. You know, um, and they, now department like where I'm at, we have a grant team. Like that's all they do. So you're looking for money for something. You're like, Hey, I want to get this. And they're like, Oh, you know what? There's a grant for drones and cameras in this place over in it. So let me, I'll do do that. Yeah. Yeah. So they do that. So these smaller agencies, um, I would highly recommend if you don't have the money for a cop, then make one of your civilians get a civilian position that is trained in grant writing and and get them trained up with some other grant writers from major cities uh and damn that would make a big difference you know well there there are grants that are specifically for rural areas through the FDA and and places like that that are just that usually like absolutely news to small departments and one of their big obstacles in accessing the grants is um is time. Yeah. Uh, the grants are in, insanely time consuming and they can be mm-hmm. really complex. Once you've learned to do them, you can learn to do the next one. 
Um, yeah. But uh, especially with all the, you know, the continual changes in crime reporting and all these sorts of things, um, I think some of them, and I, it's not an excuse. Um, I'm very much a no excuses person and I annoy some people that way. But there is a certain level at which it becomes so frustrating that it's counterproductive and they just drop it and getting somebody in local government to accept that a grants position can more than pay for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that has to be quantified and it has to be communicated. Uh, and that is really where the breakdown comes. Uh, one of the counties uh, we lived in, when they needed to make some cuts back in the last recession in 2008, if you can imagine the two places they cut, the first one was in their billing department. And the, I know, and the second one was their grant writers. Oh, yeah. And so they just absolutely cut themselves off at the knees just with those two things. And uh, that's where you kind of go, you need some different, different level of management and administrative skills. And um, you've got to be able to show people this can pay for itself and it just like showing them how much it costs to allow your patrol positions to churn. You yeah. know, if it's effectively going to cost you a hundred thousand dollars every time you let someone walk out the door and you have to replace them, you're not saving any money, um, right. but you've got to get that point across first. It's the same sort of idea. Yeah. Uh, the other big push that I have for the, Smaller agencies getting, I, I'm all about large departments, um, big brothering, awesome. all their smaller, smaller departments around yes. them. Um, and uh, I've seen the fruit of that from yes. where I'm at, you know, because the bad guys that don't like to stay in our city, well, guess where they're going? They're not going That's too exactly far. Where they go. they, they're going to go to the little surrounding cities. So um, I like if you have a major city around you, get them to have a real time crime center. And then part of that real-time crime center is borrowing a body or two from each agency Mm -hmm. that surrounds them. So during their hot times of their shift or whatever they can, they can afford to give up. um, Now you have representation for your department in a facility that they would never be able to afford by themselves. So they can help out that, you know, like the, the major, like, let's say it's Detroit, you know, and you got this little side city, that little side city officer, he can help out Detroit while he's sitting in their real time crime center. He can help them out. It's like a free body for Detroit. But at the same time, they're monitoring everything that's going on for their guys on the ground at their city and they'll be able to help. And then you get the camera systems going and you just get this beautiful synergy between all the little surrounding cities. And I think that would help out our, our rural guys that are out there. Um, if they could have some sort of representation in these real time crime centers. So they are taken care of in a, in a technological way that they would never have gotten before because dispatchers are limited dispatchers. They're, they're call taking, they're doing all these things where a real time crime center person would be Johnny on the spot. Well, and and to broaden the idea of what is my area of responsibility and why, Um, because the roads do not end at your city limits. And, you know, the vast majority of highway systems and um, therefore your drug transport and those sorts of things 
they're going through rural areas. Their beginning yep. point and end point may be urban, but all that space in between, that's where the people I write about live and where they work. And, you know, they don't teleport from one place to another. They not got yet. there somehow. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not yet. Not yet. Although we could be doing this live if we could do that. Yeah, uh, I know, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, no, I, I think you're right. And I think uh, the idea of that exposure, each one to what the other is experiencing and what they know and who they know, um, those sorts of things for one of the articles I wrote last, uh, first September 11th last year for, for the anniversary date, uh, I was privileged to interview a counter-terror expert from Ireland. And uh, one of the things that is his big, you know, everybody's got something they repeat over and over is in his is that it's important to know the people you need to know before you need to know them. Yeah. That it's too late to try to establish that line of communication, to establish trust, to establish relationship afterward. And that's really what you're talking about right there mm-hmm. is getting butts in seats from outside your bubble, yep. whichever bubble it is. And, and talking to each other. And and I think everybody will learn something. Uh, one of my husband's deputies was a uh, retired LAPD. And I mean, this guy was a salty old street dog. He started during the Watts riots. Oh, you know? he, was, yeah. he was amazing. Um, and so he came up here to this little town and he's working for this little department. Um, you know, looks my husband in the eyes and goes, I know why I'm here. I'm here to watch your back. And it was like, oh man, that's amazing. However, after he'd been there for a while, one of the things he says is I had to relearn everything, everything, because he had never in his entire career not had backup literal seconds away. And he says, I never hesitated to start stuff or to get into stuff ever because I was never by myself. He had a partner in his car and there could be dozens of other officers there in a moment. And now he was doing some things hours out away from the office. And it wasn't a bad thing, but it was really different. And, you know, and to be able to carry what he knew into the small place and for him to relearn a different skill set. Um, it was it was actually kind of interesting to watch, and his stories were amazing. So, oh, I bet, yeah. I I actually went to a my my college course had a had a LAPD guy in it, and I'd pick his brain all the time. Yeah. Just like, you know, he'd been on quite a while, not nearly that far back, but um, he, oh, just a unique perspective. You know, even though I work in a major city, it's it's still nothing compared to LA or New York. You know, you so so you pick the brains of those guys and you, you, you get a lot of good tips from them and how to deal with people. You do. Um, and then there's, you know, other things that, you know, one of the towns in California that we lived in when we were younger, uh, very often because that one was on I five. And so they actually did get some laterals from LASO and LAPD. And, uh, once in a while when they'd come up, you just kind of see everybody go, oh, because they didn't know how to process a scene. They didn't know how to lift prints. They didn't know how to take pictures. They didn't know how to, you know, there were specialists for those things. They did not do those things. They answered calls, you know? And so it was an in-between and you're looking at them going, there's no 
crime scene tech here, buddy, get out your ruler, you know? Yeah, Not we do it all. You, you know? Yep. And uh, you haven't lifted a print since you were in the academy, but guess what? That is what we do all the time. Um, right. You know, so. You just sure. do that. You, you, you deal with what you have as a cop. Yeah. If you don't have a crime scene team, then you are the crime scene. If you don't have a neighborhood patrol officer that goes to the town hall meetings and relays that information to patrol, well, guess what? The patrol officer is the NPO and and the town hall guy. So it, it is, and it's, it's different. It's always funny when you see um, officers that that's all they know. They, they came from a big city place and then they go to some training in another place. It's an FI card, you know? Yeah. And they, and they, they start, you know, you inevitably had these conversations and you're like, yeah, he's doing this. And you know, I took a report and I got the hell out of there. And they're like, well, who did the crime scene for y'all? Like you didn't do the crime scene. And then, you know, then you, then you start seeing the differences. You're like, Oh, where the hell are you at? Yeah. Like we process everything, you know, the detective comes out and he processes the scene, something weird like that, you know? Yeah. It's fun seeing the differences in that, but all right. So Kathleen, what is on, what's on the agenda? What, what, um, and I know you've, you've been doing this since 2019. So I'm sure the stuff that's near and dear to your heart, you've written about, you've gotten that out there. Um, what are the new things you're trying to tackle right now through police one and the articles you're doing on the rural badge? I am always looking for new topics. Um, and that's one of the reasons I am in the middle of the news and the headlines and stuff all the time, because I'm not writing hard news. I want to know what's the story that needs to be told behind that. Um, so, um, one of the things that I have coming up, um, is, um, a historical piece and tying into current events, uh, from, a really massive law enforcement loss of life in Missouri back in the 1930s. Uh, And uh, I came across that on the county's uh, Facebook page. I went, wait, what? You know, it was right about the time um, everybody was talking about Newhall's anniversary. And one of the things that you see on a lot of write-ups of that is, you know, it's the largest single loss of life before 9-11. And I'm looking at this and going, no, actually six officers were killed and four more wounded. And this tiny little thing in this podunk place in the hollers, uh, back in the 1930s. So I went and dug into that a little bit and there were actually, the more I read about it, the more parallels there were with some current incidents that I was able to tie together. Um, and I, I find that fascinating because I love history and I love current events. Um, mm-hmm. And I like history because it informs you about her current events. Um, so I'm always looking for more things like that. Um, I'm always looking for stories that officers need told. I have kind of a long-term project I've been working on, and it's been harder than I thought it would be, uh, about one of the difficulties that officers working in remote areas run into is accessing healthcare when they get hurt. And so I've done one interview about that, but I need more to flesh out an, an article with that. But I'm finding that it's... Um, it's been a little harder to tackle than I thought it was because if the officers are still active, um, there's usually a lot of legal stuff going on. If it was the result of a crime and not an accident, then there's a court case that's open. Uh, but yeah, I'm talking to officers say, you know, that are in the intermountain West that discovered they had to be airlifted, not to the next big city, but to Seattle to access a complex 
surgical repair and then rehab after an incident or, you know, an officer gets hurt in Nebraska and finds that he's hospitalized and then in a rehab in Colorado. And so now if his spouse wants to be with him, she has to go there too. Well, now that what happened to her job? Yeah. Um, you know, those sorts of things, uh, because I think that's something that kind of falls through the cracks. And in my world, it actually happens pretty often. We saw it on a smaller scale where we lived in California because nearly everyone who needed complex care, whether it was surgical or cancer treatment or something, they had to go to like around the Bay Area. Yeah. And so six to eight hour trip by car um, when you're already having a hard time with life. Um, and that's what kind of got me on that track. So I'm still working on that one. Um, I don't have a timeline for it, but it is, some of these projects take like months. Some of them yeah. are, you know, the, the ones that are news analysis, it's like, you know, you read something and you pop it out and go, here it is the next day. Um, but I've got some, lo- a couple long-term projects like that, that are kind of, kind of cooking and my email and my inbox are always open if somebody wants to talk about those particular things. I got plenty of topics I could give you. You know what? Fire away. I just away. don't have the time to do them myself. Yeah. I was going to say fire away because I, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm perfectly cool with just filtering through them because I am very good at keeping the page and my column really tightly targeted. But mm-hmm. a lot of times, even if there's a, there's a topic that you're thinking of, I may well be able to tie it into something that's within my wheelhouse. Yeah. One of the things like when you and I were first chatting that I was like, we're losing context. The direction I was going was one of the problems that I have seen in law enforcement is, um, the standardization of training. Oh Lord. Um, yeah. So the, the one that I would say the biggest thing that gets cops in trouble is use of force. And if you look at use of force training, not just state to state, but city to city, it is absolutely crazy. The difference. All over the place. It is so nuts how different it is. Um, no one's taking the, the reins and trying to lead. Nobody's, you know, it, it becomes this piss and match of well, our stuff's the best, well, our stuff's the best. And I'm like, you know what? Show me a city whose use of force is low in a place that handles a shit ton of calls mm-hmm. that's what i want to see not not a place where the officers all stay standoffish they don't do any proactive police work and that's why they have a low use of force no i want to see the guys that are constantly getting into the shit but they never seem to have any use of force why is that i want to know why that is for one and two what training are they getting yes. i want to see what their training is because the training is probably pretty damn good and, and are they supported by the citizens? I think that makes another big difference. You know, these, these factors that come into place. And, of course, where I work, I think it's the best. Um, I really do. Great. And I'm not, I, I don't, that. you know, most cops are like, oh, this is mediocre. Like, no, I think mine is the best. And I think it's got room for improvement itself. Um, but I think a good starting spot to for any agency that doesn't have a standardization is just being comfortable knowing that you will have to fight on the ground. If you know how to fight on the ground, I think you will eliminate a lot of use of force issues. Uh, it's a weird it's a weird way to to explain it or to to get people that don't do the job, but the the best way I can explain it is like go get in a fight with a 4-year-old. 
Like, literally, go get in a fight with a four-year-old. It's fun as an adult. You just mess with them, you know. That, if you get that good at ground fighting, that is essentially what it's like getting in a fight with a suspect in most cases. I am on body camera myself laughing. Like, dude, what are you doing? Stop. Like, you're going to hurt. Like, I'm trying to talk him down from hurting himself. But he's in a fight for his life in his mind. He thinks he's he's going to kill this cop. But to me, it's like a three-year-old or a four-year-old, and you just got them down on the ground, you just messing with them, poking their belly, whatever, you know. It, but with a suspect, that's the same type of thing. Uh, that's how good you should be at, at ground fighting because inevitably, if you get into it with somebody that is resisting and is not going to let you cuff them, 100% of those go to the same place. That's the ground. And I would rather know what the hell I'm doing there versus – being in the range and being able to put a little dot a hundred times in the center because in 17 years, guess how many times I've had to use my bullets on a person? Yeah. Zero. But how many times have I had to fight somebody? A lot. (laughs) And I'm good at talking people down. So, um, I would say I, I get into it. I've gotten into fights even less because I was trained than, than some people that are socially awkward because there's no way to test for hiring on that. I think you could look great on paper, but you're a social mess because you're socially awkward and your mouth gets you into trouble. Or you're not reading people when you talk to them. Yes. You've got to be watching, not just watching hands, but watching faces, watching expressions, social cues. I I was one of the teachers that never, ever had a fight in her classroom because I watched all of them and the boys that start bowing up at each other, like a pair of cats you yeah. wait till break, you change the seating chart. <laughs> yeah. And when they come back, they're not only not next to each other, they can't see each other. They can't see anybody but me. Yeah. And the whole thing stops. Yeah. So you know. that that's a big one for me. That like that to me, that's uh, some sort of standardization when it comes to use of force, uh, maybe report writing even, because we're so vastly different in report writing. Honestly, standardization is one of the things that I think is coming, whether people like it or not. Um, and I know nobody wants federal standards forced on them. I know that, right. but yeah. the way to avoid that is for every state to collectively get its stuff together and do their own. Yes. Because and, and, yeah, I agree. Um, when every and see, this is, again, I only knew California because as an adult, that's the only place I had lived. And there, there is one set of post standards Every academy trains to it or above. And so not only is there no jurisdictional breakdown, you know, you can chase somebody from one county to another because you're still a California peace officer. Your powers emanate from the state, not from your department head or your city or your sheriff. Um, But everybody knows how everybody's been trained. You know, the report writing skills, whatever this are certainly going to vary from place to place, but at least the basics are there. I did not know until I started writing about this stuff that there are places where every single department has their own police academy. I didn't know that. Now I do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of a mess. Yeah. Um, or where there are places where there's only one police academy in the whole state. And so you hire a guy because you're down three positions. You manage to hire one guy and you can't get him to the academy until the one state academy has a seat. And that's where things like officers patrolling before they've gone to the academy comes in because that seems reasonable in that state 
Well, mm. because otherwise they just stay down and they've already hired him and blah, 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 blah. Well, why don't you fix that end problem there and keep some people in the shoot? But, but to me, that's the thing. It's like every state has one set of standards for, say, a lawyer or a nurse or, you know, you don't have to explain to someone what that means if they're a registered nurse or if they have passed the bar and are admitted to practice before the courts of that state. Um, those sorts of things, that, that's one set of standards. I think law enforcement should be the same way. And I think if every state can at least get it to that point, I think we're going to have a whole lot less of the pressure coming from national levels saying, well, we need to do something. And the fact is they're not doing a very good job either because they really don't know what they're talking about at that point because they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. But each state but, really does know what their weak points are and they could fix yeah. this. Yes. So I'm, I want to backtrack just a little cause I don't want people to be like, Oh, Levine wants national police. And no, that's not what no, I'm saying. Absolutely I'm not saying there's certain things that I think should, that could be, either nationalized through the state, I guess nationalized wouldn't be a good word. How about standardized would work or yeah, codified? A standardized approach. And yeah. um, use of force, in my opinion, like when you break it down to, you know, the behavioral science of stuff, there's all these indicators that you know are going to happen with the use of force and the articulation shouldn't change and the, the a fight's a fight. Like, so what one department's allowed to do and another part department isn't like, I think that's nuts to me. Like I can punch somebody at my department, but the department next to me is not allowed to use a closed fist. Yes. What? How can we vary that much when we're right next door to each other? Well, there's another thing too, especially with things that demand a physical response and muscle memory, like use of force. Um, if you're talking about taking somebody to a certain level of proficiency in ground fighting, um, they have to repeat that and they have to constantly train at it. And that means that no matter where they work and no matter where they live, they have to be able to access that level of training. Yep. I agree. And, yep. I, I'm a big, uh, I've, I've got fixes for all these things. I like, um, it, you know, it's a, a partnership with the businesses in your city. Sure. Um, you know, rather than you pay me, like my department will pay me to do the physical fitness exam every year and, and pass it. So mm -hmm. that's an incentive to stay in shape. So you pass this test. Well, save that money. Get Pay for me to go to jujitsu school at a school yeah. that's approved. Yes. Um, give me a gym membership at a boxing gym, something to that effect, you know, whatever it is you want to do. Um, but I would rather that money be invested towards something where, um, you will continue to pay for it as long as I keep showing up for it, you know, maybe have an attendance thing that's kept, um, some sort of standardization there. But, uh, yeah, you, you can't just do it in the academy and expect to be proficient at it no. for the next 20 year career. Cause it doesn't work that way. It's no different than shooting. You have to continuously shoot your gun to be proficient at it. And ac so. access to that level of training is one of the things that's really difficult for the officers I write about. Yeah, 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 and absolutely. So it, it, that's, I don't believe any problem is completely insurmountable, but right now that is one of the obstacles, mm -hmm. um, is even finding that sort of training. So whether you have to be willing to send someone out to become an instructor and that sort of thing, um, I, I don't, I don't know exactly what the, what the fix would be. 
for that. I'm not a big fan of those either. Personally, you know, you get some guy that never trained. He goes out and does a 40 hour train the trainer course. 40 hours is not enough. Not and for now the- he's the expert like that. That doesn't work. Yeah. Um, you know, to be, get a black belt in jujitsu, for instance, I'm a, like, I'm a fanboy. like that to me is the yeah. fix of all things. Um, but only because I've seen it and I've used it and it's proven to me, I know I can arrest people without ever having heard them. Um, yes. so that's why I like it so much. But, uh, you, you get, well, I forgot where I was going with that. I started talking about the other thing. Um, what did I just say? We're talking uh, about it access and number of hours required to become proficient. Yeah. yeah. So, um, to, to get a black belt in jujitsu generally takes 10 to 16 years to be what's called, you know, to, to be a guy yeah. that can teach yeah. it. Yeah. So, um, it's not realistic for you to think your, your police officers are going to be black belts after going to an academy and then getting a reoccurring 40 hour class once a year, or, or in most cases, eight hour refresher once a year. And see, to me, that's a place where you have an opportunity not just to improve training for the officers, because, again, you've got to find a way to get it to the guy who does not live in an urban center. Yeah. But also to educate the community and their expectations of what their officers are and of who they are. Um, And the fact is that these are other human beings like you. Yep. With all of the advantages and all of the shortcomings that every human being comes from and that you don't get to expect that every single one of them is a ninja trained SEAL warrior with double majors (laughs) in sociology and psychology who is an ordained minister on the side. You don't get to have that, you know. Um, And then touch on the medical side or the animal side of things dealing with loose cattle and Yes, Bulls and he's a cowboy, and, and he's yeah. you know yeah, yeah it's yeah. just it it you that I I don't think the community as a whole has a realistic expectation of what it means to be a law enforcement officer, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of them get the their picture in their head from TV and movies and and those sorts oh, of yeah. things, and you know that's one of the things when I write about you know officers who have gotten hurt. On TV, the guy who got hurt, you know, he's in a hospital bed at the end of the episode. And the beginning of the next episode, he's back in the briefing room with his arm in a sling, cracking jokes. And that's the end of it. And, uh, you know, and and the other things come along with it, that every single person can do all things and do them well. Everybody should have a certain level of proficiency, but it's not realistic to expect every single officer to be an expert in every single thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's just so many hats that are expected. Um, that'd be part of my fix to start taking some hats away. Please put do too many, too many hats on me and my, my dad, he's a retired, um, police officer, but we, uh, we did a podcast recently and he had actually brought up the idea of, um, why don't we just let firefighters handle all car accidents? That's true. They can call us if they believe the crime has been committed. You know? I think that's brilliant. I mean, they've got arson investigators, so it wouldn't be that big a deal for them to do a easy report, you know, and if it does happen to be something that's criminal, like car insurance or whatever it is, something minor like that, they could handle it. And if it's something bigger, they push it off to a police detective. Yes. And then it, they call you and say, this guy was turned out to be fleeing a crime or he was drunk or whatever. Okay, yeah. well, now you, now you need law enforcement. Yeah, because yeah. could you imagine how many cops you could free up if they didn't have to handle accidents anymore? 
<laughs> essentially what happens is we show up typically firefighters are there before we are uh and or whatever it is and then they handle all the medical stuff like that's not you know me- the the medical side of things like yes i still think we need to be trained in it but um we definitely can't be the bulk of it and we usually aren't unless you start getting out rural where the they're the med they're the medical unit the firefighter and the officer in some cases so well yeah um i've I've talked to some officers that work for like a quote-unquote public safety department and literally are also emts and firefighters yeah Um, i've seen it but um i also wrote one article just about what rural officers carry in the backs of their vehicles oh geez and um one of the other podcasts that i did the, the guy was just cracking up because that's what my vehicle looks like when i go camping yeah. And this is just what they eat. And it was yeah. seriously, it was enough stuff for if they actually get stuck three hours. I say they could get snowed in. They, if they get snowed in, if there's a log across the road, if there's a mudslide, um, if there's, um, I know one of uh, my, my husband was the only DA investigator in our county for the last five years of his career. And um, he started carrying a case of water and a case of MREs in the back of his rig after there was an officer involved shooting on a cartel marijuana grow and it was so remote that they had to long line every officer out one at a time because they had hiked in for like two days to get there. And so in order for them to interview these guys, he and the prosecutor were actually sitting on the tailgate of the vehicle out in the middle of the field for hours. And they were like, we kind of need some food and it's really hot. We could use some water. I should have worn a hat. Why am I wearing a suit coat when I should have worn some Columbia PFG with a, with sunscreen built into it and you know, those sorts of things. And the next thing you know, you have all this stuff in your car and it's near a river. So there's a throwable PFD and there's a bucket with some sweet feed in case, you know, the mule gets out in the middle of the road again and, 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 and the next thing you know, yeah, yep. because you are it. You're it. As a city cop, I usually carried two things: cigarettes and dog treats. Well, and they sh- those are my, they, they serve the same purpose. Those were my two population. outside the box things that no one ever trained me on. I just what I carried because I knew they would come in handy. Yes, <laughs> so, absolutely. Yep. But uh, it sounds like I need to get your husband on the podcast eventually too. That would be I'd awesome. Like, it'd be fun if he's interested. Let me know. I'll ask but, him. Uh, I'll ask him. He's never done anything good. like this, but it might be good for him. On my page, he's he's admin Boone. He still doesn't share his his name okay. yet, but okay. he could. You know, yeah, he doesn't yeah. create content, but he's he's my business manager and my IT guy. And we wouldn't have to talk about anything with the the website. We could just talk about him as doing his law enforcement side of stuff and and uh, keep it that way. And he could explain like what it was like to be a cop in very small places and you know, his perspective on some of the stuff. I think that would be brilliant. And he actually has an aspect of his career um, that most officers don't. Uh, there was a, a shooting he was involved in when we were young um, that okay. was handled very poorly with small town, small town politics, super clean shoot. All of that was good. He didn't get physically hurt, um, but he actually ended up leaving the job for almost 10 years afterwards. And which is why we're the age we are now with him only retired three years. But um, during that break, he actually got licensed as a private investigator and even did a lot of a criminal defense trial prep. Yeah. That's what my dad does now. 
the thing is, yeah, I, I tell you what, that was an excursion into balance and mercy. Yeah, my family absolutely. did not even know that we needed and it was not where we wanted to go at the time. It was not where he wanted to go in his work, but we had bills to pay. And the skill set is very narrow. People don't realize that. But when, you know, it's like, you know, the thing right now is for cops to leave and become real estate agents, which oh, will yeah. work until the next housing market crash. But, um, you know, that was what he found was, well, what do I, I'm, I'm a really good investigator and I can still do this. And a friend said, if you do, I've got work for you and, uh, learned a ton of things he hadn't learned on the other side of the bar. And then when he went back into law enforcement later, he was able to bring that balance and that knowledge with him. It made him an even better investigator. So very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I didn't mean to make the ending part about him, but yeah, if he's interested, I would love to have him. I will let him know. Um, But yeah. And also I will reach out to you. I plan on doing, um, so I, you saw how I could get multiple um, uh, things on here. Like I get a bunch of people if I wanted to. So I kind of want to do a Hollywood squares. Yeah. I want to do a spouse's thing. I want to talk about, you know, the, the person that like you, you've been with an officer to the point of retirement versus somebody that is um, in a dating relationship with an officer and then somebody that's, you know, kind of hit all the different stages and just we'll round top. We'll talk about all of that stuff. I think that'd be a really interesting episode and it that would shed would a lot of perspective. That so. would be interesting. And, and the perspective of a younger woman coming into the relationship in these times it's going to be very different than mine was, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You're right. And that, that, man, it'd be a good conversation. I think it'd be good, but uh, also be a good article. Maybe we could do an article like that. That could be. Yeah. Good piece for you. But, um, all right, man, you got anything else that you want to, that you want to hit on that we haven't, I'm I'm not booting you off by any means. I just, no, I I don't know if I missed anything. I'm trying to think. And I, do, I think we've covered a whole lot of it. Um, I'm definitely interested if you have topics you would like to see me look into further. Um, there's okay. nothing I love more than digging a little. Okay, absolutely. I'm uh, My brain is, that's that's my my kryptonite for myself is it never shuts off. I'm constantly thinking. You and me both, 1,500 tabs open all the time. Uh, yeah, and I, I got to learn to control myself. But um and right before we go, one thing I wanted to mention to you that I think you'll be, you'll dig is Dan Carlin, Hardcore History, his podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. You you said you do a lot of research before you put something out. I do. This guy will blow your mind. And I'm he's sure not, he will. He's not a historian, but he will, I recommend you find him and then find his thing on Genghis Khan. Ooh. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah amazing he's a storyteller the way the way he talks i know you being a writer you'll appreciate the way he articulates and paints a picture in your head and you don't see anything that's a podcast yeah it's great stuff so um yeah i appreciate you being on ma'am i think this was a good one i appreciate the invitation so much it's good to be heard hey not a problem all right let me end this and everybody thanks for tuning in catch you in the next one (laughs) 